Welcome to the Bangers and Classic Podcast with James Ruppert and David Malloy. Episode 1, The Hardline According To. Yep, uh, I'm James Ruppert. You might uh, know me from uh, Autocar. You might know uh, some of the books I've written, Bangonomics. Uh, way back in time, I used to sell cars and uh, uh, I've been writing about cars for, I don't know, 30 30 odd years and uh, I haven't been sacked yet by anybody. So, uh, this, but there's still time. I'm David Malloy. I used to be a solicitor until I get time off for good behaviour. And since then, I've turned my hand to writing about cars, which was a childhood dream of mine. I've written for various magazines, mostly about classic cars, and have written a couple of books. And some people have even bought them. Well, that's good to hear, isn't it? Um, because uh, it's very difficult to make a living at what we do. Um, so you so you do have to have uh, lots of other uh, strings to your bow. And uh, uh, books are always a very uh, good uh, string to have to your bow. Uh, because they... Um, uh, uh, some people seem to like them. I mean, I'm very lucky that in that Bangonomics, I still get people writing to me and saying, well, I, I bought Bangonomics in 1993 when it came out and it changed my life. I always bought, you know, cheap cars. And that's always been very, very good, actually. And that I've, I've had lots of people saying that it's been a, you know, I, I've had a positive effect on their life. So, uh, so at least I can uh, uh, reflect uh, on that when, you know, I come to the end of my life that uh, I've actually helped uh, people uh, improve their motoring ones. Indeed. Well, you have written a number of very good books, James, and I believe you've got uh, a new one just out. Uh, yeah, actually, it's very nice of you to mention that. Um, but uh, yes, I've uh, I pushed out something called uh, it's Ruppert's Bangapedia, and uh, this is for uh, cars which were available in the UK between two thousand and two ten. It's um, sort of a fairly contemporary uh, uh, book. Um, uh, you know, the the vehicles covered uh, are are over a twenty year period. I find that, and we can talk about this, is that uh, I find it very distressing when there's uh, a car of the year and it hasn't even been launched yet. You know, no real person has actually bought the car of the year, but it's been given this accolade and award. Um, and we're meant to go, oh, wow, that, that must be amazing. Um, but I actually don't think, I think it takes a good 10 years to find out whether a car is actually any good. You know, we, we, we will find out whether it's broken down a lot, whether it handles well or uh, whether, you know, it, it's just fundamentally a good car. So, so in a way, my Bangapedia is one way of doing this. But uh, I think it's more important than ever that people get um, sort of slightly guided as to what vehicles are, you know, uh, uh, great value and available now. Uh, you won't find Aston Martins or Ferraris in there, so there's nothing exciting in there. Uh, but is everything else which has sort of become a banger, about to become a banger, uh, is definitely going to be, become a banger. Uh, and maybe it's just at that um, uh, that dipping point where it, it could be, you know, argu- arguably. Uh, almost almost a classic um but uh, uh, it's still affordable you know cars over the, from the last 10 to 20 years are affordable and also so they are actually pretty reliable uh, which is something that you you and i have discussed before now in that you, you know it is sort of the sweet spot I, I think really you know around about 2000 uh you know cars weren't too complicated um and they still made some sort of sense but you still got to bear in mind that the car's 20 years old so it could have had all sorts of problems but um yeah that that's fun yeah if you want to uh, uh, trouble your bookseller for bangapedia i'd be very very grateful there's a point at which a car crosses over from being a banger into becoming a modern classic but that doesn't apply to all cars and it seems to me that a number of good cars and particularly i'm thinking of cars from the 1990s didn't make that particular step Uh, one that's close to my heart because i owned it was the renault 1916 valve 
was a fantastic hot hatch back in the day. It was as good as any hot hatch you could buy at the time. It did everything you could really want from a car, as I see it. It was roomy, it was comfortable, it drove extremely well. Particularly in Sports Blue, it looked extremely good. In fact, so good that mine got stolen, but I got it back the same day, fortunately. Um, but try buying one now. They just don't exist in the UK. There's a few more in the continent, but of course, they're all left-hand drive. And that's one particular example of a car that I think should have become a modern classic because it had all the attributes necessary to do so, but never quite made the grade. But of course, that's not the only one. You can look through the lists of cars from the 90s and you'll see that a number of worthy cars simply uh, have been driven, at least in the UK, almost into extinction. They just didn't make the grade, or they didn't make the jump, rather, between being a banger, being an old car, and becoming a cherished modern classic. I'll give you one example of that, just something I've written about in the past. It's not a car that I was fond of, actually, but it's a, it's a worthy car, and I'm going to use that as an example. It's a Vauxhall Belmont, the booted version of the Vauxhall Astra. You couldn't say that the Belmont was a good-looking car. You couldn't say that it was an exciting car, but it was a very worthy car. It fulfilled a number of important functions for people up and down the land, of simple functions like taking the kids to school, going to work, going on holidays, going shopping, visiting relatives, all the important roles that a car can fulfill for people. But there's almost none of them left. I mean, there were, I think there were 50,000 or so on the roads back in about '95. And having uh, done a little bit of a check this morning, uh, it seems to me that there's now fewer than 100 known to the DVLA. So that's quite a sad situation. It's a car that's heading for extinction, but it's not alone in that respect. There's a number of other cars from the 90s in particular, and indeed from the 80s as well, that are heading that way too. No, that's right. Um, but I, it, that seems to happen to just about all cars. I mean, uh, you know, one of my favourites is uh, the Mini. Now, the Mini used to be absolutely everywhere and it was really strange actually i was looking at um, some pictures the other day where they had a, a sort of a picture of uh, somewhere in 1969 and then a picture of somewhere in you know uh, to 2019 or something and the thing about the 1969 picture there was about four minis in this picture you know and it, it was a very it was a very tight shot of a road but that just shows you how many minis there were and how we sort of took them for granted and they they were great cars because they actually worked when they shouldn't have done um, you know they will always keep going even though they you know they had gaskets gone and something else has gone and they're very rusty but they will still plow on and on and uh, we've got to that stage now I mean it, it is partly being a you know uh, uh, a throwaway society uh, it's partly cars you know uh, um, used to have a finite life of about a decade um, but I think certainly when it comes to to the 90s and you make a very good point about that um, is that you, you know I don't I, I don't think cars were cherished in the same way and a lot of cars ended up going to the uh, to the scrapper uh, even though they were actually perfectly serviceable I think a lot of people uh, would rather have just just bought a brand new car you know finance was very easy uh, 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 to get and I think a lot of people you know wanted to uh, show off to their neighbours and it it probably became not very fashionable to drive older cars even though i've tried to reverse that trend and i'd like i like to think i've contributed to um, several cars surviving uh but i think overall the vast majority of people who uh just you know motoring uh, isn't you know uh, one of their passions it's just something that they have to do they would much rather have drive the latest thing and a renault 19 unfortunately just wasn't sexy enough to survive and in in fact a lot of cars from that era even though they were very very good um and actually probably were quite sexy at, at the time still struggle because people 
um, as I say, would rather move on to other things. You know, people don't have the space to store cars. And I think I, I, I think that's one reason why we just don't see so many cars around now. One thing we should perhaps consider when we're looking at modern classics and to what you might call emerging classics is the 2009 scrappage scheme. If you'll recall, that was a scheme that enabled owners to trade in cars with a current or I think a very recent MOT in order to get £2,000 or so off the cost of a new car. The idea, of course, was to boost the sales of new cars and no doubt to get rid of what were perceived to be environmentally unfriendly cars. Now, if you actually look at the list of cars that were scrapped, and you can view this online, the government, in response to an FOI, published a list. If you type in UK Car Scrappage Scheme 2009 into Google, that should take you to it. If you work your way through the list, you'll see that it's not just bangers that were being scrapped. You've got cars that were genuinely interesting and, quite frankly, some very rare cars as well. The list includes such things as the Corrado VR6, which is a very desirable car both then. There's some Lotuses on it. There's a TVRS and, I think, some Porsche 928s and, indeed, some other interesting cars too. The same fact remains true for every car scrapped on it. Those cars either had a current or very recent MOT. So they weren't cars that had been sitting in somebody's driveway on the pile of bricks for several years. These were cars that had been in use. They could have continued perhaps to have been in use, perhaps could have been repaired or restored, or at the very least have been a good source of spare parts to keep other cars on the road. But once they were traded in um, under the scrappage scheme, that was it. They were gone, they were out of circulation, and basically you have to consider that all it was really achieved was to get rid of some interesting cars so that people could get £2,000 off let's be honest, for the most part, boxes on wheels. It's a very, very sad situation, and we can only hope that the experiment, if we can call it that, won't be repeated in the future, though I have to say I very much have my doubts about that. No, that's right. I mean, uh, that list is is actually, uh, I mean, if you like cars, I mean, I, I don't think you can get through, you know, like the first row of cars they have there without breaking down into tears, really, because, I, I mean, there was certainly... Uh, an integrale uh, there, which def- definitely went. And I had a picture which was sent to me by somebody on a uh, who was actually in, in, in charge of stacking all the cars up. And it was actually uh, a BMW coupe from 1972, you know, which was which would be an E3. Um, was it was a very ill ill thought out and, uh, you know, not uh, a very clever scheme um, because uh, I can't see an upside ever to a scrappage scheme. Um, You're listening to the Bangers and Classics podcast with James Robert and David Malloy. We are talking about the UK government scrappage scheme that operated in 2009 and 2010. The government's position obviously was they wanted to get rid of older cars which they thought were higher or heavier polluters. And in some respects that, of course, is true. But... I wonder if they gave sufficient consideration to the environmental impact of building new cars. The first thing is that clearly when it's a new car, you have to ingather, you have to either harvest or manufacture the components. You have to ship the components often by air, which isn't particularly environmentally friendly, to the place where the car is assembled. You have to assemble the car. That obviously carries with it an environmental impact. Then you have to distribute the car. Now, the impact of this can be significant, particularly if the car is coming a distance. Cars that come a long distance are sent uh, by sea. They're not obviously sent by air for reasons of economy. The ships used to transport vehicles from the place of manufacture to their marketplaces are large, both in terms of size and in terms of the environmental footprint. And of course, there's a further environmental impact when the cars are then moved from the distribution center, the distribution point in each marketplace to the individual uh, sales points. I think it's true therefore to say that every car has already had 
a significant environmental impact before its first owner ever takes the first drive in it. And of course, the story doesn't end there. When a car comes to the end of its life, the components of it have to be disposed of. Some will be recycled, which carries an environmental impact, and others will have to be disposed of by other means, either by landfill or otherwise, which will often carry, or usually carry, in fact, a more significant environmental penalty. In taking that all together, I think you can argue that the environmental case for replacing an old car, which perhaps isn't used very much, by a new one, which is going to be used much more frequently, uh, isn't necessarily a black and white. Absolutely. That's the that's the beginning and the end of the argument, really. Um, uh, you know, uh, running running a classic or an older an older car is the most environmentally friendly thing that you can ever do, uh, never mind buying one of these uh, newfangled uh, cars. Uh, but strangely enough, actually, I've actually signed up to uh, go and drive one of these newfangled cars um, in March. I don't know whether it's going to happen or not. Um, it, it involves me going to uh, Essex and it involves me going to this huge place, which... Um, uh, uh, it's in Braintree, where they, where uh, it's a, a sort of a huge battery charging place or something. So it's like a it's like a petrol station, but for battery cars. So I'm going to go there because uh, uh, I, you know, I should uh, dip my toes into it, whatever I think about it, and uh, just see what they've got to uh, 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 show me. You know, they might they might be able to change my mind. You know, yeah, it might. You could become, you could come back a convert. <laughs> I could be, couldn't I? <laughs> You might have to shoot me, though. That's the only problem. Um, no, not me. I'll, I'll pass it off. I'll um, delegate that to somebody else. We'll subcontract okay. that one, James. Okay. But, yeah, we're talking about older cars and things that have changed. One of the things I was looking at recently doing, a little bit of recently, was reading older car magazines, reading old road tests, and things have changed a great deal. And I know you mentioned before the suitcase test. Perhaps you might want to tell some people who perhaps weren't around in our day what the suitcase test was well i mean all it was it was it was a fantastically uh, simple uh, but but very very you know good way of telling you how roomy uh, the luggage compartment of your car was i mean certainly what car had it and i and certainly um, maybe even uh, motor did as well yeah, but they had predetermined yeah that's right they had you know they had um uh, uh, the old fashioned uh, plastic suitcases um uh, and they were in various sizes, um, and they had the uh, the uh, cubic uh, footage on them because it wouldn't have been liters; it was uh, cubic feet on them. Um, and sometimes, sometimes they had boxes as well, but um, it was mainly suitcases because that was real world and understandable. And it was really how many they could get in into the boots. So, yeah. so you so you had an, an instant; you could instantly know what you would get into your car. Obviously. Uh, as we know, as older car owners, there is an infinite amount of stuff you can get into an old car, and that includes people as well. Uh, but uh, this was actually useful stuff. You know, if, if your dad was going to go and buy a car, it, that was pretty important because he wanted to know when he went on holiday whether he could pack every everyone in. Um, he also needed to know maybe for his job um, how roomy the car was. And it was a, it was a really basic thing because that was what people wanted to know. They really they weren't interested whether it, you know it would go around a corner um, at ninety miles an hour. That was of no interest to them at all. Uh, it really was the basic stuff. They wanted to know was it was it comfortable? Could they get everyone in? And could they get all their bits and bobs in there? And it was very basic stuff. And 
uh, in the early days of Top Gear, when Top Gear first uh, started, and there was a there was a program before that as well, which I cannot Ooh. remember the name of. Um, but yeah, they would they they would concentrate on the basic stuff, which is actually what most people want to know when they're when they're buying a car. Uh, yeah, yeah. So the the suitcase test was very very clever. I mean, what they used to do in Motor Magazine anyway was they would take one of the pictures that accompanied the road test would be of an open boot and arranged in front of the boot would be all the suitcases and bags and they'd be all from the same manufacturer that fitted into the boot. So that gave a customer a visual representation of what they could, or there would be customer, a visual representation of what would fit into that boot, which was excellent because people don't really work in cubic meters or cubic liters or whatever. They work in terms of, can I get three suitcases and a couple of shopping bags in the boot? Could I get my fridge freezer in the boot if I bought one? Could I get a flat screen TV in it? Those are the things that matter. And they mattered then. And even in this day of home deliveries, uh, obviously with the pandemic, but they, they still matter. And it's something that seems to have been lost. And I'm not quite sure why. I think it's uh, people showing off, really, isn't it? I think a lot of people think um, that they're, uh, you know, they're far more important than they really are, and that people will pay far more attention to what they say and what they write. Um, and maybe they do think that uh, they should be, uh, you know, working for Top Gear magazine or something, and uh, you know, they they get rather wound up in it all. But as you say, yes, I mean for. 99% of the people who are, who are going to buy cars um, that they want to know the basic stuff. They, you know, they do want to know, you know, is it going to be economical? You know, um, you know, is it, is it going to be comfortable after a two hour drive? You, you know, because a lot of cars aren't, you know, a lot of cars give you all sorts of jip. You have to stop yeah. halfway through and uh, go for a walk uh, to free yourself up. And that is actually quite important. And uh, these sorts of things are completely lost. It's all about, you know how the how the you know the writer felt about the car. Um, again, something we discussed in the past. You know, is about you know soft fill plastics. Nobody cares. And they really do not care about that. You know, um, they might care about whether there's somewhere to put their um, uh, you know their their bits and bobs. Is there stowage space for uh, you know for for things? But they really don't care about the aesthetics very very much. Um, but they do care about the practicalities. Um, and at the moment, um, we're going through uh, uh, a very strange f uh, um, sort of dashboard phase where it does look like an iPad. Um, and that has to be left behind uh, because mm. you know, having to program a car before you can drive it rather than just in the old days, you could in our fantastic classic cars where you can just hop in and, uh, you know, and, you know, you're familiarized within within seconds and you know what things are. Um, but now it's a very complicated procedure. And I do know people who drive lots of different cars and they say to me, well, it does take me now, you know, 15 to 20 minutes because I'm not going to move off until I'm absolutely happy um, that I've got everything, you know, programmed and ready. But what will happen with a modern car is that you will stop for, you know, a coffee break or whatever, and the car will reset itself. And that, you know, that just seems like madness. Isn't it? But it's it's going to reset itself, I think, so that you can't sue them <laughs> because you because you've adjusted the suspension, I don't know, and all sorts of other things. Uh, but then it's just going to go to factory reset for the majority of items. So it, 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 we do live in very curious times. Yeah, and you, you touched up on something mm. there as well: the use of touchscreens. Yeah, in the old days, it was buttons, nice chunky buttons. 
uh, which you learn through muscle memory. You could touch them. You, if you wanted to put your wipers on, if we say it was a real wiper, chances are in the old days it was a button. You just pressed it. You, your fingers went straight to it. You didn't need to take your eyes off the road. Same with other controls. You would know, once you'd driven the car a few times, you would know instinctively where those buttons were and you could do it whilst keeping your eyes on the road, which is obviously what you should be doing at all times when you're on the move. But with touchscreens, and though they say, don't use these when you're driving, they put temptation in people's way and you know what happens then? People do it. Um, so I think perhaps that's a retrograde step. I think I'd rather have buttons in a car. Also, the more tactile, it's a more, you feel more involved with the car. That's right. I think you are right. That's something that's been lost completely. Um, and it is something that um, actually car journalists, uh, that's probably one of their jobs. It, it is actually to say to manufacturers, you do realise you're going down, you know, like a dead end here. Um, and that might, and although it takes several years to, you know, turn the, turn the ship around, uh, uh, you know, at least things might change. But um, it may just be uh, a cost thing with them in that it's much easier just to have uh, something that you, that you plug in um, rather than, you know, going to all that complicated ergonomics but ergonomics you know was it used to be a very important thing um you know it used to be like you know can you reach this can you see that um and you, you've probably experienced like i have uh the bmw interiors certainly of the um you know the 70s and 80s and 90s uh which were you know a fantastic way um you know of actually uh, driving a car saab were, were very good at it as well because they combined that with really good seats i mean it was a you know a marvelous experience to drive a saab for a, a long distance um and then they've got the uh, the thing which is turning off all the uh, extraneous lights, which um, you know are the you know the dashboard lights, so that all you have is the um, uh, uh, the speedometer lit because you don't need any distractions at night, really. Mm. Um, but yes, I mean they you know they had very clever things, and actually uh, that was as far as the development needed needed to go with cars. Really, you know there wasn't. As you say, there is there is no no point in going any further. You know, once you've reached that point of perfection, um, unless you can make something safer, um, yeah. which they which they haven't, because you know they they seem to make things a lot less safe. Um, it, it it just it you know it it is completely pointless. We're talking about buttons and touchscreens, and the disadvantages shall we say of a touchscreen one of them of course is if a touchscreen goes faulty then you lose access to various things possibly to quite a few functions whereas if for example a fuse for a button goes out then you might lose access to that one thing you have one system to do everything there have to be backups and in these cases as far as i'm aware if it's, you know, a touchscreen goes that's it it's got to be repaired there's no backup you simply lose access to the functions that were operated by that touchscreen and that's unfortunate but there's lots of other things from the past that perhaps we've lost. And one of the ones, and I'm saying this in a sort of semi-jocular manner, is unassisted steering. You know, you get more of a purity of feel. It's, again, if you're a keen driver, you'll appreciate that. But the other advantage is if you had a large or even a medium-sized front-wheel drive car back from, say, the 70s into the 90s, then what you could do is go to a car park or go somewhere, spend 15 minutes parallel parking it, and save a fortune in gym fees because you get a great workout. Well, that's right. Yes, I, do. I did have a Golf GTI with those nice fat wheels and no um, uh, power steering. Uh, but you see, I got u used to it. And uh, mm. yeah, I mean, people today might say, goodness me, that, that was almost impossible to steer. But I obviously got very used to it. Um, but it, it seemed to be second na nature to me. Um, and it wasn't because I was a on the limit driver. Um, I don't know, it just, it just made things a lot better. And I think I noticed very quickly if something was wrong, if a tyre was deflated, or there was a puncture, or there was 
you know, something strange. There was, you know, one of the bearings was going. I, I, I actually think um, I picked up on all of those things far, far quicker than I would have been on a, uh, a modern car where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of cotton walled away from um, all the things going on. Uh, I mean, in a way, we don't want to say that the old days were best, but they were really. Absolutely, James. There's lots of ways in which older cars are superior to their modern counterparts. And I'm sure that's a theme that we'll return to in future episodes. In the meantime, we'd like to say thank you for listening to the Bangers and Classics podcast. And we hope that you'll tune in again. Ah!